Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. You've probably heard this. A conservative, a charismatic, and a Pentecostal walk into a church. No, I'm just kidding. Just thought I'd lighten the load, lighten the feel. Many of you came up to me after two weeks ago when we sort of broached this subject and said, you just seemed really stressed. And uh, yes, I definitely was. Um, My son, Nick, just had to take a training, a week-long training to go to work for this U.S. aviation because he's going to be training pilots. And... uh, this week he was showing me his backpack. It's a special backpack pilots can use. And it has all this different equipment that he has that's got to be inside it. And he loves it because it, there's a compartment for all of it. There's things in it like this. A yoke mount, foggles, his iPad, a headlamp, fuel sump, fuel stick, logbook, headphones. Very, very expensive headphones that are noise canceling. And he's showing me all this equipment in there. And I said, man, that's awesome. He's excited about the bag. So as I'm leaving the room, and he says, oh, there's one more thing. And he reaches into a little side pouch, and he pulls out a bag. And he goes, this is for when I have to puke. (laughs) And I thought, I ought to have one of these for this series. (laughs) So now I have a little puke bag just in case. And if you need one, the elders or the uh, ushers are equipped with them (laughs) for this talk. You say, what is it that made you stressed? Because I I don't have a stress teaching difficult stuff. There's a couple of things that stress me. Of course, one of them, I mean, this topic, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, it's a difficult topic, and it requires that you kind of get a little more theological, technical, than you normally might in a sermon. It feels even more like a classroom than we already feel, all right? So that stresses me out a little bit when I think about who's walking in here on a weekend, what they need from God, and uh, that's overwhelming sometimes when we get kind of technical with people who might be walking in and they've never even heard of the baptism of the Holy, they don't even know what we're talking about. That's stressful. Um, It's a controversial subject. Controversy's okay. Uh, But there's been a lot of conflict over that issue. Denominations formed around the differences. Um, And some people are sensitive to the subject on either side. They have strong feelings or maybe bad experiences related to the topic. Um, So those are the reasons that uh, it makes me a little stressed. Um, Because we have to dive into that kind of thing, and I think it's a healthy thing, but it's just different. So, let me pray. Father, just calm me, and then I pray that um, whoever's in the room today, something will be said, because your word is so powerful. It's just so powerful, Lord, and you never know how your spirit is going to use it, but I just pray somehow you'll be able to touch us all through this. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have a lot to do, and um, let's just start doing it. We have 
two weeks ago. So we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me just quickly define that. We're talking about a baptism. We're talking about, just for the sake of argument right here, an experience somebody has when they first come to Christ they're baptized in the Spirit. You, you know, probably know of water baptism. When a person comes to Christ, they get water baptized. They get dunked into this. It becomes a f- sort of a, uh, a physical representation of what is happening to a person on the inside. But the immersion, the dunking, just says that just enveloped with it. It's the same thing the baptism of the Spirit is. You're sort of plunged into the, the, the era and the 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 um, environment of the Spirit of God when you become a believer. So in case you're here today and you say, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, at the very basic, it's God coming to live inside of you. So when you think of the Christian life, you don't think of it as a religion that you, that you, dis- you just decide you want to follow and then you just do your best. That's not it at all. Christianity is completely different. The Spirit is necessary because you've got to be forgiven and you've got to have God come and live inside of you in order for you to live the life that's pleasing to him. You could never do it on your own. That's Christianity. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit is sort of the, the language that the Bible uses to describe the moment you decide to trust in what Christ does for you. Then the Spirit of God comes and it envelops you. you. You don't see the world the same. You don't think the same. You don't want to be the same. Your whole reality changes. It's like entering a whole new reality. So that's what it is, essentially. Now, there's some debate about, and I just showed this chart a couple of weeks ago, how conservatives which would be our camp, for lack of a better term, uh, view it, how charismatics view it, and then how Pentecostals view it. Now, just real quickly, I just want to show you just a summary so that we can get to understanding this. Um, All three of these groups would say that when you get saved, the Spirit comes to live inside of you. There's no debate about that. All three of them do. And I think they would all call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, conservatives believe that happens one time. Charismatics believe that it it can happen more than one time. Okay? It can be multiple times. And the first time, the first time it happens, it's to initiate salvation. So everybody thinks when you get saved, you get that. They they argue that it can happen another time. You've probably heard it as a second blessing. Uh, or maybe the doctrine of subsequence, which means after the first time it happens, it can happen after that again, and it can happen again. And so at this time, you get empowerment. So let's just put power. It's for power. And, and it wouldn't surprise a charismatic. In fact, they would probably think you should be looking for this, that it's pretty normal for you to experience some sign of some sign that you had it, and it could be speaking gifts, tongues, prophecy, just something happens, speaking in tongues. Okay? That's what the sort of speaking and sign gifts are. So they would say that it's very normal for you to, to experience that, and uh, it's available to everyone. So if it's available to everyone, then everyone ought to seek it. 
So if you're a charismatic, you are on a regular basis seeking this, a second experience of this. You could see why it would divide a group if this group thinks it's only happened once and this group is saying that to all of its congregation, you ought to be looking for this to happen again. And if it doesn't, you're going to feel like, wow, what's wrong with me? Or what's different about me? Or why hasn't it happened? So you can see the differences between these two. And then in this group over here, same thing. It's, it can happen more than once. It happens initially. And it's, it can happen more times. And it's usually for power of some sort. But there is an emphasis in both of these two groups that power usually suggests itself in speaking or sign gifts. And in fact, Pentecostals would say there's a law of tongues. If you did not speak in tongues, something's wrong. You may not be saved. It's possible. Well, you can see how that would... <laughs> you're all going to be going, well, I've never spoken in tongues. I see a problem with that. You're going to think that... You see what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying. So... For them, it's certain that you will. So you can see the differences. Either in this group here, we, we, this group typically argues those gifts don't even exist anymore. So no one in this camp's looking for it. It didn't happen to them. They're not looking for it. They're over here. Okay? Now, Either way, this, is gonna, this creates multiple issues. But for today, just for today, all I'm trying to do, all I want to do is give you where I think I live in terms of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And then I want to talk about, a, there's a second problem that's got to be dealt with. I'll, I'll address that in a, in a second. So this is what we're talking about here. So I have a, the argument that I'm going to use and you're going to have to hang with me because I'm going to show you why I would argue this. And then you can make the decision you need to make because we're going to be living in different camps. I'm okay if you live in a different camp than I live in. But I need you to give me three weeks before you panic. Not just today. Is that, is that agreeable? Give me three weeks before you panic in case you're different. I'm arguing that just this language right here I'm not arguing about second power. I'm not arguing about what happens about the sign gifts. All I'm talking about right now is just what this means. We'll address this issue secondarily, and we'll address this issue secondarily. What I want you to see, first of all, is just what this is. So here's the argument. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that phrase alone, refers to a one-time experience that occurs at the moment of salvation, and no speaking sign gifts or sign gifts, gift or gifts, are required for it to be validated. That's what I'm arguing. All right? So, I'm going to show you how I argue that, and then you can take it and build upon it, get more detailed, because I promise you, I could spend an entire day discussing it. I've got 20 minutes, and then we've got to get to donuts. So, there are still two issues on the table. What about power and hillside? That is something we have to address. Secondly, what about the gifts? We'll deal with that later. So now I'm going to really go fast. You just have fun, I guess. Have, have all the fun you could possibly have. Here are the texts on understanding what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. 
You have four of them in the Gospels. This is where we know it's coming. Now, the Old Testament predicts it. Jesus comes on the scene. John the Baptist, in all of these, is the one who is saying it. John the Baptist says, I baptize with water. There's one coming after me, Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Those are four of those in the Gospels. When you get to the book of Acts, the Spirit of God comes down. We'll look at that in a second. And two times, on two occasions, this should be 11, 11, 16. On two occasions, these Acts, because of what happens in Acts, they will quote these verses. These two are exactly the same as this. So all camps believe that whatever baptism of the Holy Spirit is, these are the same. It's the same. Only one other time in your New Testament after Acts is the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit even used. And that's in 1 Corinthians 12. So you have two tasks if you're going to decide what baptism of the Holy Spirit, just that terminology means for you. You've got to figure out what it means, especially here, because you don't get a description of it really in the Gospels. You get it here. So you're going to have to, number one, you're going to ask yourself, is what happens in Acts unique, or is it something that's repeatable that should happen to me in my life? That's something you've got to ask. Then the second question you're going to ask is, is this the same as this, or is it different? I mean, do they all speak of the same thing or not? So I've got to look at the book of Acts, and I've got to decide whether these two are different. Because they will help you come to at least a theological, doctrinal position of whether or not you think baptism of the Holy Spirit should happen to you once or whether you think it should happen to you twice. Forget the idea that power and gifts are an issue. Just move them off of your mind. I'm just asking you to ask, answer one question. Should I expect the baptism of the Holy Spirit to happen to me once or more than once? That's the only question on the table today. All right? Agreed? Okay. So, uh... So if you're sitting here today and you, uh, and you said, yeah, I should have went to the other church we were thinking about going to, I get it. I totally get it. I need you to hang with me uh, for this because I will tell you this in case you're wondering, it's the number one question I get. Around us are churches that are different than us in this. And so we're all these churches around here. I, I, I had lunch with one of the pastors this week in our area here, and a great guy. And we were just yakking a little bit, and uh, we're, just, we're just rotating each other's people. They leave his church to come to mine. They leave mine and go to his, and then, they, you know, it's all happening all over the place. And we're all, you know, what are you going to do? Well, uh, but we're all different, but we think different things in, in so that's just how it works. We shift around. So now let's, let's fly through this, and that's what we're going to have to do. I'll, uh, so we're going to look at Acts first. We're going to look at the book of Acts first because here's what happens in Acts, and I've got to do a lot of summarizing. Uh, Acts chapter 2, so when we say Pentecost, Pentecost is 50 days after the, the resurrection of Christ. Fifty days later, the Spirit comes down. That's when the church starts. That's when the whole new era of spirituality starts. So we have to understand the book of Acts. 
What's going on? The Spirit comes down here. It's the key moment when the Spirit arrives. But then, then, there are three more sort of mini Pentecosts. One happens in 8, one happens in 10, and one happens in 19. A little shorter. These are mini ones. Now, if we didn't have the mini ones, there probably wouldn't even be a discussion and an argument. But because it happens three other times, you look at Acts and you go, how many times should it happen? Should it keep happening? Should we be experiencing them again or not? That's the question you have to answer. Is this individualized for all of us and that should be happening multiple times? Or should it happen once? And then how do you explain these three if you say it only should, have, or should be something that happens once? That's the primary issue. Now, a lot of this has to do when you're thinking about the book of Acts and you're translating it. There's a few things you have to think about. Acts is definitely a transitional book. I'm going to say these fast. It's a transitional book. You are going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You're talking about walking in a different era from Old Testament to a New Testament. Remember, John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet. He's not a New Testament prophet. He's in the New Testament. He's an Old Testament prophet. He is essentially saying, I represent the Old Testament. There is somebody coming that's going to represent a whole new era. We're going to move out of that. So Acts is the transition, the massive transition from Old Testament to New as it relates to the Spirit. That's the key difference in the Old and the New. So you're seeing that. And there's a moment, since the Spirit isn't here, where everyone is told, well, you got to wait for it. It's going to be 50 days from now. That's Pentecost. you got to wait for it. Now, the second thing that happens is we're going to watch the gospel literally go throughout the entire uh, empire. You're going to see the gospel move. That's what Acts is doing. That's what Jesus was so excited about. Watch the gospel move once the Spirit gets here. Watch what it does in and through you and watch where it goes. It's going to be amazing. So you're watching that as you're going through Acts. And then the final thing is, this is, sec- this is almost really, really critical to interpreting Acts. How in the world are you going to make a gospel, a salvation message that's primarily Jewish, that comes out of the Jewish nation? And how are you going to include Gentiles in it? Because that's what these three mini ones represent. How are you going to get, we're talking about a massive racial, cultural, geographical, spiritual gap between the Jews. As high as any racial distinction you've ever seen in your life. The ones we experience in our history. And not just in this country. That's how wide of a gap. How are you going to get this Jewish message to Gentiles? And if you're not thinking about that, you will interpret Acts differently, which is to some degree at the heart of this. In fact, Gordon Fee, who's an Assemblies of God pastor, I should say he's a scholar, 
phenomenal scholar. He's, and when I say assemblies of God, I mean he's classical Pentecostal. Uh, great, great scholar. I've read much of his thinking on this. He says, exegesis, in other words, the study in Acts by charismatics is hermeneutically uncontrolled. And by hermeneutic, we mean the science of interpretation. How you start at looking at this book will determine how you understand it. And even he is saying that there are times when charismatics, their science of understanding acts can be a little uncontrolled. That is not a knock on the charismatics and the Pentecostals and what they're doing. It's just a Pentecostal person explaining to you what I'm trying to explain to you. How you see acts will determine how you determine how much of it is for you. So, here's a summary. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes down, uh, uh, let's go here. The day of Pentecost comes, they're all together in one place, and all of a sudden there's a sound like a violent wind. There is no wind. It's just the sound of one coming from heaven, fills the entire house where they're sitting. This is all the 120 that are in that room waiting for the Spirit to come down like Jesus told them to do. At the end of the Gospels, Jesus tells them to wait. They go and they wait. Fifty days later, the Spirit comes. There's a wind. The 120 of them are sitting in a room. Tongues spreads, uh, tongues spreading out like a fire. There wasn't a fire. You just, you have this tongues experience is happening, and it's going from person to person like this, and it's almost like a fire spreading, but there's not a real fire. It's not real wind, and there's not real fire. It just sounds like that. And, it, and it's being experienced like a fire taking over something. And all of them were filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak in other language. Now, I didn't have time to tell you this, so I'll do it real quick because I'm trying to validate. Here's how Acts interprets that event. 1-5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes down in Acts 2, that's called baptism of the Spirit. That's what Jesus meant. That's what Luke, who's writing Acts, is saying. This is that. And so when you read this, you are reading that, the baptism of the Spirit. And then you see this word filled, very important. We don't have time to do it now, but it's, we'll come back to it later. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Is that different? Is it similar? Hey, that's Father's Day. Hope you'll be back, all right? So look what happens. They begin to speak in other languages as, they, as the Spirit enabled them. So they're speaking in languages, and we know that these tongues, these languages, are actual languages, so as the Spirit is sort of coming over each of these people who are speaking, and it looks kind of like a fire happening, they're each speaking in a language that they may or may not know themselves, but it's a real human language, and we know that from the rest of Acts. I don't have time to prove it. You can read it. This is easy. Everyone knows this. But they're actually speaking in a, a real known language because everyone hears in their own dialect. Whatever tongues is in the world, in Acts Two, it's, the, it's foreign languages. I don't think that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, but that's what it is in Acts 2. Here it's a foreign language. They speak it. You say, what is tongues? Well, what happens is in tongues, and this is just a fact, 
You praise God. Tongues is not a language to humans. It's a language to God. Okay? After Acts. It's not, that's not what it is here. But in Acts, or in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, it's a, it's a language to God. So they're speaking in another language, but they are talking to God because they're praising. Tongues is praise. It's sharing the wonders of God. What happens in this case is they're actually speaking in languages they may or may not know. What they're doing in that language is they're praising God. And someone out here who knows that language is hearing that praise. It's sort of a pre-evangelistic thing because it's not what saves those people and it's not what evangelizes those people. That doesn't happen until Acts 2 and Peter gets up and preaches a sermon on Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's accomplished that people get saved. So it's a pre-evangelistic kind of a thing that, that because of the moment that it's in, and everybody sees it, and that's the moment. And so there's your baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's Acts 2. Now we're saying, okay, cool thing. This happened. Spirit's here. That happened. Church is about to form. And what is that saying? It's just simply saying this very uniquely. Christianity is a world religion. It's the reversal of Babel. Linguistic barriers in Genesis 10 were verses or it was a time when it scattered people, it divided people. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes, Holy Spirit is, that, is the one thing that can unite all people and all nations. That's the power of this moment. Now, uh, let's go to Acts 8. Let's see what we have here. All right, in Acts chapter 8... Now what's going to happen? Now the gospel, we know in Acts 1.8, the gospel's got to go to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, the Jewish group. Then it's got to go to Samaria, the half-breeds. Then it's got to go to Gentiles in Acts 10. And then it's got to go to uh, the uttermost parts of the world, Rome, by the time you get to Acts 19. So that's why these three happen. So it's going to happen again here in Acts 8. These are the Samaritans. Samaritans are half-breeds. The Jews hated them. How are you going to get the gospel, this Jewish thing? I mean, it happened on a Jewish holiday, a Jewish festival, Pentecost. It comes out of the Old Testament. How are you going to get Samaritans to buy it? And how are you going to get Jews to accept Samaritans? That's as strong as anything. You know, they... The way that you, a Samaritan, Samaria was the sort of the capital of northern Israel, of Israel, the northern part. And so when the Assyrians came in, Israel's worst enemy, they intermarried with them. They became part Jewish and part Assyrian. The Jews despised them. You think of any people group. In our world, in our history, that any other people, whether it's a tribe in Africa that hates the other tribe, or any kind of other racial distinction. But then you add to it the worst kind of things you can put to it, and you've got the Samaritans and the Jews despise them. And the only reason the gospel gets to them is because the church gets persecuted here. Until these people have to run for their lives, the Samaritans aren't going to hear a thing unless 
the Jews have to run for their lives and end up over here. So that's what God had to do to get the Jews to a Samaritan. And then the Samaritans, then you sort of have this moment. Philip preaches the good news to them. Uh, they, they believed, and then they got water baptized. But we don't hear anything about the Spirit. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans, all right, accept the word of God, this would have been monumental. It would have been mind-blowing. Look, Peter and John, they sent Peter and John to them. We need to get this checked out. So the two of them go down, and they prayed so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. So there's your moment. They now have their reception of the Spirit. But it's interesting. Why did the Spirit wait to come? Because I'm going to tell you, a good portion of the argument, most of the argument from Acts is from this text right here. You've got these people, they get saved, they get water baptized, but the Spirit didn't hit them. You and I, when we're preaching, we're saying the Spirit, you and I in our culture, we're saying the Spirit of God comes into you, you get saved, then you get baptized. What about the order here, and why do they have to wait for it? Why do two apostles have to come and give them the Spirit, Pete, if you're arguing that it should happen? Well, this is real patience on the part of the Spirit. (laughs) The Spirit has a lot of patience. I'm going to show you that. God knows when I'm going to show you that, but I'm going to show you that. So they have to wait for it. Oh, wait a minute. That means, hey, all of us, we're going to argue that they were saved, that they probably got the Spirit, and then we're going to say that they had to wait for the second sort of a blessing. Is this a second thing, or is it the first thing? Because your Charismatics and your Pentecostals are going to call that a second thing. Why would we have to wait for Peter and John to come here? And part of it is, and I think a big part of it, and I think the rest of the book proves it. The Samaritans had to experience exactly what they experienced in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. Or the, or the people in the Jerusalem and the church that just got started and the Jews would never have accepted the Samaritans. They would have considered them half-breeds. Now the text doesn't say that they spoke in tongues. But I think it's safe to assume that they did based on Simon's response to it. Can't get into that. I'm just telling you I think they did. So what happened is, but here's the difference. There was no other group to speak to. There was not pre-evangelism to be done. Whatever the tongues in Acts 2 is, it was not serving the same purpose as in Acts 8 because there was no one to speak to. There was no other people groups there. There was no other language there. So there was no need. Why would they speak in tongues there differently than they spoke in Acts 2? It was all to attest to the fact that what happened in Acts 2 is the same thing that happened in Acts 8. And if it didn't, the Jews would have never accepted them. That's the argument that I'm giving you. I will prove that in the next one. So what I'm saying is we're not having to wait. It's not a second blessing. They had to come down so that they could go back to Jerusalem 
and say, hey guys, they experienced the same thing we did. If they didn't do that, they'd have never accepted those half-breeds. So the gospel overcomes all those racial barriers. And it isn't even finished. You wouldn't believe what it has to overcome in Acts in order for the gospel to spread initially. Now we get to Acts 10, and this is where Cornelius, I'll have to summarize this a little bit. In Cornelius in Acts 10, this is such an amazing text. I, I can't even believe what's going on here. Cornelius is this guy, he's a Roman centurion. He is Gentile through and through. Jews didn't mess with Gentiles. Peter, who now witnessed what happened to Samaritan, is told, uh, actually no, Cornelius is told to go see Peter because... <laughs> When was the last time you ever prayed that lost people would find a Christian? Because that's what happens in Acts 10. Peter is so unwilling to go to a Gentile's house that God has to whisper in the ear of the person he wants to reach and tell him to go find the guy who's going to share the gospel with him. It is unbelievable. I want you to go find Peter because he's never going to come to you. Never. Peter has to have a vision, three times has to have a vision to say it's okay to overcome some of the distinctions between him, between the Jews, and the Gentiles. Once Peter finally gets all the messages from God, he goes into Cornelius' house and he gets right into their house and he tells them, I don't know what I'm doing here. God told me to come here. This is crazy, is basically what he's saying. Now, this is such an important text. So Peter has to change, and you get to Acts 10. He says, listen to this, just here. Peter says to him, you know it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. I'm not even to come within 100 yards of you, let alone enter your house. Think about it, Hillside. How in the world is the gospel, Jewish in nature, going to get to a Gentile? That's what Acts is burdened with. That's how you and I get into the kingdom. But God has shown me, Peter says, that he doesn't show favoritism. And then he says in the baptism, this is what he says, and you know what happened throughout Judea. Let me take you back to what happened to the Jews. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John announced, he takes them right to the issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John announced. John said a water baptism, but here comes a spirit one, and that whole spirit thing has just changed the nature of the gospel, and here I stand in a house I'd never go into. That's the gospel for you. You got any people in your life that you think are out of reach of the gospel? Where your heart is as hard as Peter's? To a certain people group? The gospel should shatter that in you. I don't care if you don't like Democrats. Gospel should shatter that. Republicans you don't like should shatter that. Race, shatter it. All of them shattered by the gospel. And Peter gets shattered. And the gospel comes. And you've got to read this. You've got to see this. Uh, I'll just go to, while Peter was still speaking these words, watch this. He's starting to preach the gospel to them. He stands in the house, he explains to them how in the world he got there, and then he starts to preach the gospel. Now look at the spirit here. In Acts 8, the spirit is very patient. 
He waits for Peter and John to show up before he comes into the people of Samaria. But here, Peter's still preaching the message they haven't even believed yet. Notice what happens. The Holy Spirit fell on them while he was still speaking. Here's the anxious spirit. Got a reluctant spirit. You got a slow, patient spirit in Acts 8. But you got a you got a spirit who can't, like, Peter, you're preaching way too long. I'm going to solve this problem right now. Even in the middle of your talk, I'm saving these people. Peter was preaching a sermon too long. That's what happens. And they get, the, they get the Holy Spirit. It gets poured out on them. This is that event. We know it's that event because in chapter, <laughs> this is so beautiful. Uh, they start to speak in tongues. Listen, what's tongues? Say it out loud. What's tongues? It's praise. They're praising God. That's what tongues is. So they're praising God. It's not like Acts 2, and it's not like Acts 8. In Acts 8, they got to wait for the Spirit. In Acts 8, Spirit doesn't wait. But they start speaking in tongues. In Acts 2, they speak in a known language to some people so they can hear the gospel. There's no one here in the house that speaks a different language than Cornelius. So why would tongues come here? Peter says, man, the Spirit's come on them. We can't withhold water. Now we got to water baptize them. They've received the Holy Spirit. Look it. This is important. Just as we did. Who's we? Jews. So he gave orders to have them baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he stays. Now I want you to see something. Let's see, where am I right here? Now watch this. And then just say something to you real fast. We're probably going to have to conclude here. I'm not going to be able to get to the last point. Uh, but let me, just, let me just say this point to you here. Because um, I think it's important and we'll end. So we have an over-anxious spirit here. He jumps the gun and gets in there. Chapter 10, you've got this elaborate way that the gospel has to get over to Cornelius. And I'm going to tell you, in all these critical markers, all these critical points, chapter 8, 10, and 19, I think one commentator said it best. The gospel crossing ethnic and geographical boundaries is so important to Luke that he actually takes people through the, through the book one geographic region at a time. There's actually a moment in Acts when the, you remember the moment when Paul is about to go one direction and the Spirit says, I do not want you to go there yet. Do you remember that? That place is 19. It's a far out place. When we get to chapter 19, Peter or Paul gets permission to actually go there. So what I'm saying is all of these moments are critical moments in the gospel's beginnings. That's why you have these sort of mini Pentecosts. You have it in 8, then you have it in 10, and the Spirit comes down on them. And all of 10 is how hard it is to get into Cornelius' house. Then after it happens, Peter has to take this long journey, this long walk. I don't know how long he had to walk to get all the way back to the Jerusalem church to explain to them what happened. He goes all the way back there, and you've got to hear what is said. Uh, that's too early. Here's chapter 11 where Peter has gone back to Jerusalem trying to explain what happened to Gentiles because they're not going to buy it. Then as I began to speak, he is explaining to the Jews, the church in Jerusalem, I began to speak and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Look at this. How? 
just as he did on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord as he used to say, and now look what he's going to quote. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit. This is the other verse. Right here, you are getting, in my estimation, the key argument for why there were three other mini Pentecosts. It wasn't to be applied to each individual. Do you know there's two dozen people who come to Christ in the rest of Acts, and there's never another Pentecost for them. It's always in groups where a whole new geographical era or era or area is being formed. Always in groups, never individual. No one is seeking. It just happens. And it's this. It's the same thing John's been saying. So that's what happens in this text. You know what happens next? Acts chapter 15. They, they've got to call a time out in the middle of the Spirit doing all this amazing work in people's lives. They've got to call a time out and have a Jerusalem council meeting in order to sit down and... How in the world is this gospel getting the Gentiles and are we still requiring Gentiles to become Jews before they can become Christians? That's all of what Acts 15 is. You got Peter has to talk, James has to talk, Paul and Barnabas have to talk, everybody's got to talk, and they're all saying, you're not going to believe it, but I'm telling you, everything that happened to us in Acts 2 happened to there and happened there, and then you get to Acts 15, and that's, and that's this. After much debate, debate, that's the issue in the book. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles so that they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, has testified to them, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Here's the phrase again, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between them, and he cleansed their hearts by faith. What is that? Oh, that's 19. So here's what you got. I got to get done. Here's what you got. You got the, you got Peter and John have to walk all the way to Samaria for them to get the Spirit. How patient is God? Because he loves the church so much that he's being patient so that the church and the Jews all get on the same page. They literally have to walk. They didn't have, they didn't have Instagram. They didn't have Pinterest. Here's how to throw a party when the Spirit shows up at your house. They didn't have that. If they could have just taken a selfie with Cornelius, this could have been solved. But no, the long walk, then not only the long walk, Luke takes two chapters to explain this, what happened to Cornelius' house, visions and everything else. And then Peter's got to walk all the way back to Jerusalem and explain to them what happened again. And then in Acts chapter 15, they got to call a council. Then they got to write a letter, literally a letter Paul and Barnabas take to the church at Antioch so that that church knows what we're all thinking. It's all the same. That's the patience of the Spirit of God to make sure the church is on the same page. And even though the Spirit, unbounded as it is, could have just run roughshod over everybody and just did its thing, it was patient. Because of the value of the church. God accommodated. What I'm saying to you is that these three things, these three, and I'll show you Acts 19 later. These three mini Pentecosts are just a way to make sure 
that everybody's on the same page until we get to the end of this empire, this geographical empire. If we had time in Acts 19, I'll show you why that transition probably ends right there. And it's probably not going to happen again. That's why I'm arguing that what you have in these mini Pentecosts probably wouldn't happen again. So, Lord have mercy. Uh, Let me say this because I think it's important. There are two dangers here. I want to avoid them. First danger is I think any one of us running around thinking we need to experience a baptism of the Holy Spirit. John Piper would tell you if your spiritual life is dry, you need another baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I would say I don't think so, John. So I want to relieve you of that burden if I can. You can study it yourself. There's another danger. And this is where I want to pull back and make sure we look at this in the future here coming up. Is it possible for you to have more of God? We sang earlier today, more of God. What we're arguing is conservatives, and here's where the charismatics and the Pentecostals struggle with us. We think we have all of God we need, and so sometimes we stop looking for more. Our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers are trying to tell us, oh, there's more. So here's what I'm arguing. I agree with them. There is more. And I'll show you that in Acts too. I'll show you in Acts as well, because it's true. If it's in the scriptures, we got to take it. There is more. How do we interpret you and I, conservatives, generally speaking? What does it mean to have more of God? I hope you come back for Father's Day, because that's the talk. What does it mean to have more of God if we think we got it all in the first try and we don't need more? What does that mean? We need to answer that question. And our charismatic brothers and our Pentecostal brothers have something to say to us on that. Even though we disagree with them about the technical terminology, there's a practical and experiential side we should be seeking. Let's figure out what that is in a couple weeks. I love you. You got to get out of here. Don't, there's nothing to do. Do you just go get a donut, get your kid, and go? All right? All right. Appreciate you. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, Let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.